Welcome everyone to another episode of In A Nutshell, the fortnightly podcast hosted by Natural Gas World, where we look at the global news and trends in the gas industry. My name is Joseph Murphy, and today we are discussing the 2020 gas report published by Asia Pacific Energy Research Center, which looks at the key role natural gas continues to play in the Asia Pacific Economic Cooperation member states. Uh, the and the nature of these gas markets, and of course the impact that COVID-19 uh, and the recent spike in demand caused by cold winter weather has had. Today I'm joined by Glenn Sweetnam, uh, APERC's Vice President and a co-author of the report. Hi Glenn. Good morning Joseph, nice to meet you. You too, along with Diego Rivera Rivota, a researcher at the organization. Hi Diego. Hi, Joseph. Thanks for having us. So I think a good starting point uh, before we uh, cover some particular topics in depth is if you could just walk me through the uh, report's key findings. Maybe, uh, Diego, you could start. Absolutely, Joseph. So uh, this is a part of an annual report. This is the third time uh, that we're doing it. And basically what we aim to do is like, uh, see, look at an update of what happened that year in each of the 21 APEC member economies. And as a global, uh, one of the main findings is that all 21 APEC economies overall together represent about 57% of global gas consumption and about 60% of global production. At the same time, in terms of trade, the region counts with three of the top five exporters, that is Russia, the United States, in Canada, as well as three of the top five importers, Japan, China, and the United States. That being said, in LNG markets, in, in terms of LNG, of course, like APEC has some of the largest uh, importers, Japan, China, Chinese Taipei, and Korea. So that, that to be said, APEC member economies play a, a huge role in gas, gas natural markets, and increasingly so because it also accounted for 57% uh, of, of market in, of, of uh, demand growth in the past uh, 10 years. So as a consequence, it's, it's a pivotal role in which all APEC member economies play in natural gas markets. Then 2020, of course, was a very interesting year, very you know, uh, challenging in every aspect of social, economical, and any uh, sphere of, of human life. And natural gas markets were now the exception of this, of course. And in terms, just very quickly, the impact that COVID-19 had on the 21 economies was very different, but overall meant a decrease on demand of about 1%, which is below the global average. And in the production front, there was also a decrease of about 2%, which is also below the global average that we saw, which was around 3%. Uh, and then we could see, like, depending, and we can later touch upon the details and how different it was, but just to put it a couple extremes, we can see China, in which gas demand actually grew, pipeline imports grew, production did so too, and LNG imports did so as well. Whereas in other economies, particularly the United States, for instance, or others like Mexico, had the exact opposite trend. So uh, that was a big, big, uh, uh, you know, really roller coaster ride, not only in terms of demand, supply, and trade dynamics, but also, of course, on prices, in which we saw on the first half of the year, of course, like minimal lows 
on on all main benchmarks. And then we saw a recovery on the second half of it. And then a drastic spike, as we remember, in, in, in late December. And even after the report like finished its timeline recently in February, we saw uh, this energy crisis because uh, in Texas, which just reminds us the importance of, uh, of, of natural gas, uh, diversification, energy security, along other important issues. So I would say like that's, uh, that's what it sums in the analysis. And there are three di dynamics that we identified uh, that, that are important in coming years. One is the impact of Chinese piped imports through the power of Siberia from Russia to China. The other one is the increasing uh, presence of Southeast Asian economies in LNG imports, especially in Thailand, Malaysia, and Indonesia, but also in Vietnam and the Philippines, we are soon to join the LNG importing club. And finally, of course, what is gonna be the role of natural gas on the recovery of COVID-19, but also in the transition to low carbon uh, systems in which we will have again, a very diverging uh, picture and role for natural gas across the 21 economies. Okay, so quite a few extensive uh, topics, uh, Hume. Uh, um, uh, Glenn, would you like to, to add anything to about the uh, report's findings? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, Diego, I think, did an excellent job of summarizing it. I think uh, one of the things that makes us so interested in the region is the fact that, as Diego mentioned, it is growing faster than other regions. And especially as the large companies, excuse me, large economies uh, look to decarbonize their economies, the role of natural gas is going to be key. And China in particular, which is still very dependent on coal, how they decide to decarbonize, what role natural gas will play, will really uh, have a large effect just because of the size of that market on the overall gas market, both uh, pipeline and LNG markets. Mm -hmm. And if I could just focus on the uh, spike in prices we saw in December in Asia uh, because, because of this a big increase in in cons gas consumption because of the uh, the winter, but also you know other factors. Um, well, firstly, I mean, what what really caused this besides the cold weather? Because there were quite a few other factors in in the mix. And um, how did markets behave as as a result? Right. Well, I think there's a couple um, couple factors that really caused the spike the spot prices to spike. One, of course, is that a lot of the gas uh, is traded under long-term contracts, so the spot market represented not the whole market, but just a portion of the market. But then, mm -hmm. uh, I think very importantly, and this is something uh, people are familiar with, is especially in the Pacific Basin region, storage is limited. And because we don't have easy access from the western coast of North America, um, uh, any bottleneck uh, in the Panama Canal or um, just in terms of transportation can really cause short-term disruptions. So I think it was this combination, as Diego uh, has noticed, it was sort of a perfect storm of this very high demand combined with limited storage in the region and then the fact that the infrastructure isn't fully developed on the West Coast um, of North America where you have so much supply, but uh, it was difficult to get the supply where it needed to be in time. Mm -hmm. And 
we had this big because we had this big growth in spot prices. Um, I'm just thinking. So in recent years, we've we've seen buyers, uh, a lot of buyers move closer towards you know spot spot purchases and away from um, long term contracts. Uh, do you think this this event will make some reconsider that strategy and maybe favour long term contracts where where whereas otherwise they wouldn't have. This is fairly typical in energy markets that spot prices will be lower than term prices for extended periods of time, and buyers mm-hmm. will tend towards spot prices. Um, you saw that in the California electricity market, where they only bought spot for power. Um, this is a decade or two ago, but uh, and mm-hmm. then got caught short and. Uh, wished they had had the long-term contracts. More recently, that's exactly what we saw in Texas, where everyone was buying spot power. People weren't buying term power, weren't buying um, generation capacity. So I do think that this will cause a reconsideration of how much long-term gas do you want to have in your portfolio. But I think also... um, these spot prices tend to, over time, there'll be a number of firms that'll attempt to capture the benefits of um, in new infrastructure in the area. So I think it has an effect of the um, high spot prices dampen out over time. To me, it's a, a reflection of a lack of maturity of the market, uh, something that's being corrected but will take time to correct. Mm-hmm. And you talk about the problems with storage. Which countries or which areas of big countries like China is this is this a big issue? Well, I think it's a it's a big issue, obviously, for the island countries and peninsula countries like uh, uh, Chinese Taipei, Japan, and Korea um, don't have uh, large storage capacity, so uh, storage is very expensive there. Um, there is opportunity for gas suppliers to. Uh, sell swing contracts, sell projects where uh, sell products where they're providing variable volumes. Um, clearly, uh, China, with its oil and gas resources, has reservoirs that can use depleted reservoirs for storage, but uh, they haven't developed that yet. So, I think what is likely is that once the market and the infrastructure becomes more integrated between North America and Asia, a lot of the storage may turn out being in North America, enormous amount of storage in the United States, which right now was not benefiting the market because of the um, uh, the constraints on transportation in December. Mm-hmm. If, if, I, if I may add to that, please, Joe, please do. Uh, I, would, um, I would say like all these t- topics, like in particular storage, then comes to various specificities of each of the economies. So for instance, we have Japan, and I would say Japan, Korea, and Chinese Taipei share for some characteristics, characteristics very important for LNG imports and demand. One is that they lack domestic production. It's negligible or almost almost non-existent. The other one is they don't have pipeline interconnections, international pipeline interconnections. Therefore, they depend solely of LNG imports. Fourth one, they do not have South Korea does to a certain extent, but they do not count with an interconnected pipeline system within their territory. And 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 fourth, as 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 we mentioned, their storage uh, capability is limited to what they have in the storage tanks in terminals, which, in comparison to the international standards, 
it is relatively high for LNG storage terminals, but it is relatively low, of course, as an overall uh, 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 benchmark, and evidently so, so much if we compare it to European or North American standards. On top of that, in the case of Japan, for instance, what, what drives the demand is power, right? Power generation. And Japan has a system, a power system, in which half of the territory has one frequency and the other one another completely different. So there's not a lot of capability for transport of electricity, of this power generation. If it was not enough that the gas cannot flow from, say, north to south, power has also a very limited way of doing so. So it is very reactive to demand shocks, right? And so the problem in Japan was that this cold snap that was like way, way uh, colder than what we expected in, 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 this, in this time of the year, suddenly had like this big, big spike from power generation that was not expected. And then it becomes overreactive, let's say, compared to other systems, right? That was a big, mm -hmm. and then on top of that, uh, just like one, one last element was that it just happened that some nuclear power plants were under safety revisions and were offline at the same time because you know Japan faces this situation post Fukushima, which by the way we happen to cross the 10 year uh, anniversary of that of that event. Uh, that you know it has not it has meant the the that to have a very limited uh, number of nuclear reactors, nine at the moment operational. And in this case, at that moment, if I'm not wrong, we had only about three or four operational. So that was really a perfect storm in the case of Japan. And then if we go to this specificity, sorry, uh, then we'll see in Korea, for example, coal restrictions were another one. And then in China, it is more related to heating directly from, from natural gas, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, and, and going back to, to COVID-19, so looking at yes. 2020 as a whole, um, so there were a few things that stood out. One, I believe the report uh, talks about how Russia saw the biggest decline production out of any other uh, member. Um, Correct. Another thing, as you mentioned earlier, is the fact that Chinese gas consumption was still, compared to, to many other countries, very, very robust in a year, despite how, in, in a year where there was a global pandemic, which, which was um, quite, quite, quite amazing to see. Um, let's talk about Russia first. Why was Russia so badly affected by the crisis? It's it's a it's a very interesting uh, question, and it's I guess like as with many things with COVID nineteen, even beyond the 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 natural gas sector, energy markets, uh, it emphasized or the accentuated trends that were coming. And in this case, I think Russia, on one hand, domestic demand was not not growing, and it has not been doing so for for a number of years. The gas demand from Europe also, or gas demand for Russian gas imports has been decreasing at the expense of LNG imports mostly, but also a decrease, you know, from power generation coming up from renewables and other sources that have phased out Russian gas. So I would say the most important shock came from the destination of their main source of imports, which is Europe, of course, Western Europe. Um, well, whole of Europe, really, too, if we if we speak more broadly, and that was one of the first, the main reason that you know it was affected from that demand shock uh, uh, for Russia. And the second hand, uh, on a second important aspect is our LNG Russian exports actually saw a minimal decrease 
not got nothing compared to this uh, production. So this means that in spite of a rel relatively stabilization or, or you know, small decrease in LNG exports, the shock on piped imports or on piped exports was so high that it could not off, off balance that. And of course, we may see that change uh, with the power of S Siberia pipeline, which became operational at the end of the year and the expansion further on. So um, uh, Russia's situation of being so dependent on European uh, demand centers may well change as the pipelines to China get completed. And going back to uh, China, what was driving this big increase in consumption last year, despite you know the impact of the pandemic? Yeah, Joe, that's a that's a great question, and it's actually uh, there's a very interesting answer and dynamics coming in. So I wonder if we could like look at the slide number uh, eleven. This one, perfect, excellent. So here we have uh, the monthly uh, natural gas demand in all twenty one economies. Uh, and their change from 2020 to 2019. And so if we look at China in the light red color, then we notice uh, the, the pattern along the year. And so let's let's summarize it by saying that China, of course, was the first country uh, that was hit by the, by the pandemic. And it was, you know, on the month of January where we saw decrease their heavy uh, restrictions on, on transport on industry, a decrease in output, of course, and in general in, 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 in mobility life. However, after and starting on the month of February, we did see an increase on output on economic life, on, on economic growth. And China is one of the few economists in the world which registered actually and uh, a positive number on, on GDP growth itself. So if we look at what drives natural gas demand in China, it, it actually uh, has a, a part of the reason there. Industrial out output increased in China and so did gas demand. But not only that, there are two other events that uh, took place there and are very important for that. One of it is the increase of access to natural gas in residential and commercial um, sectors, in the building sector. And this is due to the increase on uh, pipeline uh, capacity, both domestically creating um, more inter interconnections and connections to new buildings, but also to within uh, LNG terminals and also the power of Siberia, Siberia coming from the north and then the domestic network increasing from north, north to south. That led to an increase in gas demand in the building sector. On the one hand, on places where there was no access to natural gas, but also it delivered increased volumes at a lower price in places where before it was too scarce or too expensive. So that combination of, of factors led to an actual increase that we can see in the graph all the way March, September. It was irregular, of course, like July, it had a, a, an actual decrease. But then mm -hmm. we can see in the month of October and to a lesser extent in the month of November, when there's there's a growth on it again from the building sector and the industrial one, uh, one factor that now that we're speaking of China, one last one last thing that I want to stress and mention because of the relevance of it was the uh, establishment and the uh, the start of operations in September of last year of Ch Pipe China, the newly uh, established um, state-based um, corporation that conglomerates midstream infrastructure for crude oil, petroleum products, and natural gas. And basically they are gonna be the owners and managers 
of most of the LNG terminals and pipelines across China. This is a major um, development, in, in my opinion, that has taken place and that leads to an increase of centralization and it's a step uh, movement, a step towards uh, third-party access and other set of reforms on the gas market sector that the Chinese government is pursuing. Mm -hmm. And we were talking about um, the the high prices in the cold weather in uh, December, um, exposing the vulnerability uh, of of supply um, uh, infrastructure. Um, but looking at China, we've had the launch of the power of Siberia um, over a year ago now, and China also benefits, of course, from uh, Central Asian gas, uh, a lot of uh, LNG import capacity. Um, so there, and also, as you mentioned, the unbundling process as we move towards uh, third-party access. I mean, one of the aims of that, right, is to to encourage more investment in in domestic production. So, from a point of view of supply security, China's got a pretty strong outlook, hasn't it? Indeed, indeed, it has. It has been a very uh, a very let's say aggressive or like. Um, global response to it. And let's remember that only three years ago, China in particular was affected by a cold snap and another perfect storm that, that took place there where, you know, basically it, it took to extremes in which regions of China were have been phasing out heating based on coal and they didn't have coal because the government banned it, but they couldn't have access to gas either because LNG term terminals were operating at their maximum capacity and there was no domestic capacity in pipelines or storage to take the gas to these regions. So I think it's definitely a lesson learned from the from the past and it just emphasizes the, the way things work in China, the way uh, infrastructure development takes place in China, which is indeed in another pace and another way of decision-making process processes compared to other economies within APEC and globally, of course. Mm -hmm. And the outlook for uh, gas demands will depend a lot to it, to quite a big extent on um, on on policy towards decarbonisation. So, I mean, in contrast, in Europe, uh, there's a lot of talk of uh, phasing out some some gas energy. Um, and replacing the natural gas with renewable gases, you know, biogas, hydrogen, uh, what have you. Uh, whereas in Asia, you've got this big uh, coal capacity, which which provides some room for for, for gas to grow as com as countries are trying to get greener. Um, which which countries in the region do you do you feel are? Uh, more favorably looking at gas as a solution for decarbonization and and what about on the other side you know which are kind of less less enthusiastic about gas uh, that's a, that's a great question actually the the answer is, uh, is is very interesting so out of the 21 you know very diverse diverse basket of of, of countries of economies in mm -hmm. APEC we only three of them have a a participation of natural gas of less than 10% of their total primary energy supply. For all of them, for 18 of them, gas represents you know, a very important part of the, of the global mix. Those three are Philippines, China, and Chile. And 
that's that's let i'll start from that part of, of the question where will natural gas may now may not play a pivotal or key role in the decarbonization process i would say chile is a good example of that in which new zealand would be another one new zealand is one of the few countries also in apec that do not uh trade natural gas so they have a already very clean power generation mix and they are pursuing you know, at the legal level, even, uh, you know, net zero policies, strategies in which natural gas do not have a major role to play. That being said, though, there are other economies that are exactly on the opposite role and in where natural gas has a major role to play. And those of them normally, the, the main reason of that is that they have a very heavy mix or very important share of coal, not only in their power generation mix, but also in other sectors such as residential and commercial heating. One of them, and the main and the largest one, is of course China, right? Which also announced their net zero uh, aim target to 2060. But others that I would like to emphasize, and I'll, I'll go straight to there, is one that we often do not hear a lot, which is Chinese Taipei, in which nuclear is to be phased out by 2025, coal capacity is also to be phased. Uh, like decrease its its capacity quite strikingly and then lng is being used in their two lng uh receiving terminals almost operating at, at maximum capacity they are they have projects for developing two even three importing terminals additional to them to the existing ones but they have faced some uh obstacles to it however the government goal is to increase quite significant, significantly their LNG imports. Another very interesting uh, example is Thailand, in which actually demand has, has been increasing for LNG. There, the, the panorama is a bit different because it's a mix, uh, the, total, so the total primary supply or the total gas supply in Thailand is fed by domestic, decreased domestic production, piped imports from Myanmar and LNG. And the two other sources have been decreasing, leaving space for LNG to grow. And that that's actually feasible because the 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 existing terminal actually is being operated at about forty percent of its capacity. So that leaves room not only for Thailand to increase their LNG imports, but also to you know do or perform to a sort of hub in the future for other uh, Southeast Asian economies. And one one last case that I would like to emphasize, just because of their size, and again. This is something that sometimes we we do not get quite into 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 its profound or its depth is Indonesia just the size of it uh, just in terms of their population right 280 million people around uh, that like disaggregated in in a vast number of islands uh, that just leaves you a energy sector which is growing rapidly on the one hand a very rapid very fast growing economy as well energy demand is running quite fast but also at the moment. Uh, power generation is dominated by coal. Domestic gas production is decreasing. And currently, the administration is not favoring a, a long boost or a, a large boost on LNG imports, but there is definitely room for it for the future, for the midterm and the long term that I, that I would see there. And probably like the two last examples that I mentioned uh, before, Philippines and Vietnam, you know, again, two very large, uh, you know, countries, 100 million people on a little bit more in the case of, of the Philippines and in which they are soon to join the LNG importing club. They, those, both of these economies do not import natural gas and they are soon to join the LNG uh, imports club. And that would have definitely a great room 
for uh, an increased participation of natural gas coming from LNG in the power generation mix. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. And um, I suppose for a lot of, for, for some countries, uh, some of that you've mentioned, uh, for example, Vietnam. Uh, so you have the interest in, in moving away from coal, uh, moving to gas um, for, for environmental reasons, but it also means you're, you're, you're importing more of your energy, right? I mean, um, a lot of their coal comes, is it domestic? Correct. A lot, yeah. a lot of, of that share is domestic in, in many cases, but not all of it, for example, in the case of Vietnam, which both gas and coal production has been decreasing. But it's true that this part of energy security does play a role for that. And I would say like in Southeast Asia, if, if we can find some common patterns is one, yes, indeed, energy security is, let's say, a challenge for it. But more important for that, I would emphasize this is affordability and just the the the, the cost uh, comp like uh, effectiveness against coal, particularly with that. Uh, so that's really a major challenge that we that is a common obstacle across Thailand, Vietnam, Philippines, uh, uh, Indonesia, even Malaysia. That that it's uh, quite quite present there. And at the same time, though, with the with the low prices that we've seen, particularly in the spot market over the past year, but also in 2019, it does make attractive, even in those terms, uh, uh, LNG, natural gas in this in this uh, region, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so so yeah, of, please jump in. Yes, in terms of the decarbonization, I think one of the keys that we're watching is will gas be a baseload um, component in conjunction with carbon capture and sequestration? and thereby replace coal and decarbonize the economy? Or will gas more be considered just a backup fuel? In which case mm -hmm. it would be there when solar and renewable, the other intermittents aren't producing, but the total volume over the year would be much smaller. So in each of these countries, they're gonna to need to decide, are we gonna focus on the electric generation from the renewable intermittent sources and use gas merely as a backup, in which mm -hmm. case coal might be very competitive still too, or will there be progress in terms of uh, carbon capture and sequestration, which would allow at relatively reasonable costs with development to decarbonize the gas and it becomes a base load that uh, also captures a major portion of the electric power generation market. That, mm -hmm. That's right. Those are, uh, those are great points uh, raised by Glenn. And, and I would add just to, to that discussion that let's remember in these economies, uh, the power generation plays a major role for, for gas demand, unlike say places in Europe, Russia, Canada, the US, where buildings, industry may play a larger role. Here it's really power regeneration what plays uh, the, the major role for it. And also there's significant uh, potential at most of cases not, not reach its maximum capacity or not optimized for renewable energy, right? Like for, for not only solar and wind, but also geothermal. Most of these economies are based on the Pacific Ring of Fire, which means that earthquakes are common, tsunamis so are, but also geothermal uh, uh, sources. And that's very important, for example, in places like the Philippines or Indonesia. So that's definitely a source of renewable or clean uh, energy that has some future. And again, it doesn't receive that many reflectors uh, uh, sometimes. But definitely natural gas along with these uh, sources can play a, a really important role towards decarbonization. Mm -hmm. 
and um, also in 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 the shipping industry as well. Uh, gas gas is is expanding quite a lot in in Asia. Um, you know, it's kind of left its um, its homeland of Europe, uh, especially North Europe, and now is um, is building up quite a lot in in Asia. Um, that's another kind of opening for for gas. Um, any uh, closing remarks, guys, to the discussion? Ben? Yeah, so I just think one of the areas that we didn't cover as much was U.S. production, yeah. which um, has been sure, growing sure. very rapidly um, in the Trump administration, uh, both non-associated gas and then gas uh, produced in association with the oil production, tight oil production. And that's a big part of what has uh, undergirded the sort of the low prices that we've been speaking about. And so we'll all be watching what the Biden administration is going to do relative to natural gas over the coming years. Will U.S. gas production resume its growth or will it be stymied by uh, uh, permitting issues associated with transportation and logistics? So mm -hmm. I think that's an uncertainty. The uncertainty there and what happens in the U.S. and then also the uncertainty as to what China does. They, of course, have issued the first components of their a 14th five-year plan, but until we see the details fleshed out, there's going to be a, a question as to whether, uh, a question about how much the gas uh, will grow going forward. So it's those two to me are key uncertainties to be watching. Mm -hmm. I mean, um, as for Biden's policy, I mean, uh, the, the ban on um, on gas leases on uh, federal land, is that a, a game changer? I mean, do, does that, will that have a drastic impact on, on, on U.S. gas supply? Yeah, uh, it will have it will have some impact. It will have some impact. Uh, a lot of the um, gas production is on private lands in the United States, so course, it's yeah. not the whole supply. But to me, one of the key issues is as the supply grows, there's new pipeline uh, uh, construction is needed, infrastructure construction, and I really think that's going to be the pinch point is through the permitting process and the environmental regulations associated with the infrastructure that needs to be developed to produce the gas is really going to be key as to whether or not that uh, supply source can grow. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, we, we recently had the, the blocking of a key, Keystone pipeline for one, one example. Exactly. That, that's a great example. Of course, that's oil. But I think the same issues will, uh, will apply for gas, too. Um, so it, it's going to be a, a key issue to watch going forward. There has been a lot of pushback in the United States um, from the labor unions to the canceling of the Keystone Pipeline and the threat of canceling other pipelines. So mm -hmm. the president is going to have a, a hard choice on his hand as to whether to continue the sort of the environmental push to limit the ability to increase oil and gas production versus the jobs associated. Uh, with those high-paying jobs associated with oil and gas industry, mm -hmm. and those um, those US LNG exporters are kind of facing that environmental pressure at home, but also abroad, um, uh, with with you know buyers wanting increasingly uh, you know stringent um, uh, rules on 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 the US gas they import. Right. Um, so I think there was a, a deal. Very important point. Yeah. The industry really is focusing on this carbon capture and sequestration, which given the um, reservoirs in the U.S. that could uh, yeah, take uh, uh, carbon, not only um, not only depleted oil and gas reservoirs, but also uh, 
CO2 reservoirs or uh, aquifers if they have proper mm. seals. So I think there's a lot of industry focus on that right now. And so uh, that may be a way to address the European concerns about the uh, green gas. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Anything else to add before we, we close things up? A couple, couple of things just, uh, uh, Joe. Uh, one, we, we spend most of the time speaking on the on the west side of the Pacific. I wanted just to mention yeah. very briefly uh, in Mexico. So for 10 years, gas in, pipe gas imports from the U.S. have been rising to its maximum every year, more than doubling. And it reached their maximum hive even uh, with the COVID pandemic last year. So that, apart from that increasing like uh, trend, it faces now the increased uncertainty on the one hand from nationalistic policies implemented by this administration, but also the urgent need for uh, decarbonization policies. So it's very interesting to see what will happen within Mexico, within its power sector, and how that drives uh, demand and U.S. gas imports, which account to about 60 billion cubic meters per year, which mm -hmm. is one of the largest pipe trades in the world. And on the other hand, also in Mexico, but connected to the U.S., was that the only uh, final investment decision often to say, yeah. exactly it took place in in Mexico ECA Energia Costa Azul, which is an integrated uh, terminal developed by Sempra uh, that uh, that will take gas LNG directly to the Pacific Basin, bypassing the Panama Canal and the challenges that Glenn and you like were speaking a few a few minutes ago. So that's a very interesting project that is moving ahead. That perhaps it has a chance for a second phase. And we'll see what what's going on. It's going to be the second project in the Pacific uh, uh, Basin. The first one in North America. The other one is the Peruvian Terminal, uh, which is uh, has a large capacity. But it's still, it's uh, it's very inter interesting time the development of this project. True, true. Okay, guys. Um, well, this has been another episode of In a Nutshell, the fortnightly web webinar. <laughs> hosted by Natural Gas World, uh, where we look at global news and trends in the gas industry. Thank you very much and see you next time.